standing in endless lines, tourists elbowing each other for the perfect selfie, and locals complaining about a loss of quality of life. This week, we're talking about over-tourism. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This week, we're talking about over-tourism. It seems that all of these major cities are experiencing some level of over-tourism, and I've been talking about it quite a bit on the podcast. If you go back and listen to episode 31 about the Cinque Terre, I outline a lot of the big problems that the Cinque Terre is facing, mainly due to increased cruise ship traffic and the passengers that are absolutely inundating that tiny corner of Italy. I also talk about some of the ways that you can avoid being caught in these huge crowds. But it's not just a problem in the Cinque Terre. All over the world, some of the most popular places are getting flooded with tourists because of cheap airfares, because of people with disposable incomes, and because of cruise ship traffic that is dropping people into city centers by the thousands. So as I've been researching this phenomena of over-tourism, I stumbled upon Elizabeth Becker. She wrote a great book about this very topic of over-tourism. She's also a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, so I was really excited when she agreed to be on Destination Eat Drink. She shares a lot of her thoughts on over-tourism and some of the ways that you can avoid being stuck in the crush. But first, let me ask you to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. That way you can get it delivered to your phone, to your tablet, to your computer every week as we drop a new show. You can subscribe at radiomisfits.com, at Spotify, at TuneIn Radio, and of course at iTunes. But for now, let's talk to Elizabeth Becker. Destination Eat Drink. Elizabeth Becker is an award-winning journalist who was part of the New York Times team that won the Pulitzer Prize for Public Service for her coverage of 9-11. She also won the John F. Kennedy Book Award for When the War Was Over, Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge Revolution. Ms. Becker is also the author of Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Elizabeth, welcome to Destination Eat Drink. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. You spent a lot of time in Cambodia in the 70s, covering the forgotten part of the Vietnam War and then the subsequent Khmer Rouge genocide. How did you, as a young journalist, wind up in Cambodia? I was a student at the University of Washington in Asian Studies I had um, and Southeast Asia. So I had a uh, already had an academic background in graduate school when I had a disagreement with my major professor. So I bought a one way ticket to Cambodia and started being becoming a journalist. <laughs> OK, it was narrow, it was narrow when um, you know, women were pretty much excluded from anything resembling that kind of journalism career. In those days, women were mostly in the women's section. So it was also one of the few ways that you could be a, a serious journalist and, and, and be a woman. So all of that came together. And that's how I started out as a journalist covering the war. So you wind up as a young journalist in the war zone in Cambodia. Um, 
I mean, the, like you said, there weren't women journalists who were covering war zones then. What was it like, not just as a woman, but as a journalist? It was obviously um, both um, intense, the kind of intensity you have when you're covering life and death situations in a country that was beautiful but being destroyed. And um, it was also heartbreaking, clearly, and terrifying. It was an amazing way to begin a journalism career because you have a very serious topic and you have to get it right. Particularly since I was covering um, the American um, intensified bombing, the saturation bombing of Cambodia when um, the United States dropped more bombs on Cambodia than, than were dropped in Asia in World War II. So that was scary because it was my country doing the bombing. And you don't know what that feels like until you are actually doing it. And then, whoa, it's um, it's tough. It's very tough. Subsequently, after the war in Vietnam came the Khmer Rouge. And you covered that as well. You stayed in Cambodia for the entire time, I'm assuming? On the contrary, no one, no one was allowed in Cambodia. Okay. I was in no one. I mean, the the whole point of the Khmer Rouge is they make North Korea today look like an open, transparent country. Wow. They closed everybody, everything out. Uh, no phone, no mail, nothing. People were not allowed. To, foreigners were not allowed to come in. There were, I think, two flights, one from Hanoi and one from Beijing. And then they cut out the one from Hanoi. So what I what I did was I was one of only two journalists ever allowed into Cambodia. And that was for only two weeks. And it was an eventful two weeks because, as I said, we we're the only ones ever allowed in. I was allowed to interview Pol Pot, which you know is only once to do it while he was in power. And it was a completely uh, Potemkin village kind of trip. And at the very end, um, we were attacked by the Khmer Rouge themselves. Uh, one of the people on the trip, there were only three of us, the professor on the trip was murdered and I was um Guns were pointed at me, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the what my reporting and photographs were um, so rare that I was then called, you know, decades later to be an expert witness at the Khmer Rouge genocide trial. Your trip sounds absolutely terrifying in yeah. in Cambodia. We're now 45 years later. What do you think people should take away from this? Because I think Cambodia is largely forgotten, even as the Vietnam War is called the Forgotten War. But I think Cambodia even more so is forgotten. What what should people remember about uh, Cambodia in that time in the 70s? Well, I think I'll speak as an American, especially because we expanded the war into Cambodia in order to protect American soldiers to leave, leaving, withdrawing from Vietnam. That's why we spread it. And that's what President Nixon said. And I think what you should get away from it is that we see it today. The United States gets involved militarily in countries without understanding um, or even projecting realistically what the consequences would be. And the consequences, not that, that the United States was the only, the only major actor, but it was a key major actor. So that I wish Americans would be <coughs> less hesitant to support a military action when, they're, when they really Truly, the government hasn't told them, shown them that they know what they're doing 
with all the consequences. And that was dreadful. Excellent point. The law of unintended consequences, I think, is <laughs> very much in play here. Yeah. Um, have Elizabeth, have you been back to Cambodia recently? Yeah, just in February. How How is it different? I mean, obviously, there's not a war going on. But culturally, it's it, it must have changed quite a bit in the 45 years since you were first there. Well, and um, I have a whole chapter on that in Overbooked because it's an example of how to get it wrong. Cambodia is, is one of the most naturally beautiful countries in the world. The temples of Angkor are among the um, the world's great wonders, but they have allowed over-tourism, and um, they've allowed um, sort of helter-skelter kind of um, building now. The, it's the, kind of, the government is now an authoritarian regime under Hun Sen, so it's, it's, it does not respond to the population per se. It's, it's a rather corrupt government. And it's it's has all the makings for the worst of, of, of tourism. So the money doesn't go into um, the locals; it goes into you know the elites or international um, corporations. And um, like Sihanoukville used to be a beautiful beach now beach resort area. Now it's turned into um, sort of Las Vegas of Southeast Asia with Chinese uh, hotels and Chinese casinos everywhere. And um, you, you don't even know you're in Cambodia. If you didn't know it before, you'd say it's still lovely. But for someone who's known it for so long, it's heartbreaking. This really leads nicely into your book, Overbook, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. And you're saying Cambodia is an example of how to do it wrong. Are there still places, I'm sure there must be places where you can get away from it and see what is, quote unquote, the real Cambodia. Sure. Um, I tell people to, if they're going to go up to Siem Reap, which is the, the town of Angkor, is to keep going and go to Battambang. Um, there are a couple of other places. Um, Kampot, for a while, I think that's getting a little overrun. And um, Kampot's a good place for uh, relaxing. On It's a river town, but just close to the beach. Kokong. There are all kinds of different places, and um, the old, you know, it's like any place. I, you know, I don't want to sound like an old nostalgic person, but um, there's there's some modern Cambodia that's okay, but um, it's it's harder and harder. You mentioned the temples of Angkor, and with the rise of the internet, and specifically our Instagram culture, the temples of Angkor have become overrun with tourists. I think this is a good example of what you talk about in your book. Um, is, is there anything that can be done to maybe stem the tide of things like uh, the flood of people into places like the temples of Angkor? The steps, well, l l let's go back a little bit. Um, there are some things you just can't do. And that's why I wrote my book. It's not it's not on the tourist shoulders to be able to do it. So if I if I could step back and just say what you can't do, um, the industry exploded, as I say in my subtitle, at the time of globalization. There's never been a time before in in, in history where all of the borders of the world are open, where technology has allowed you to be able to take inexpensive uh, trips around the world, where the middle class, the global middle class has grown so much. So when I was, the last um, beat I had at the New York Times was uh, international economics correspondent. And while I was covering the explosion of the globalization, 
I noticed that the one industry that was really taking off because of the global world was never covered, and that was travel and tourism. And that's why I wrote the book. It, and it's because it's not, it was not seen as an industry. It was seen as a hobby. It was seen as vacation, but not as an industry. So there's very little um, looking at it as an industry, very little regulation. So one, a tourist can't take the place of good good regulation of an industry. And the industry itself, as you know, um, judges its success on the number of people that arrives at a destination and how much money they spend. It's not on how how much it the, the tourist actually enjoys the experience or whether or not the local destination thrives or is flooded. So that's why I wrote my book. So within that small parameter of what a tourist can do, um, there are a couple of, of sort of basic things. Um, one that the industry um, supports wholeheartedly is to travel off season if possible and to to avoid the bucket list if possible. You know, I think I think it's hard because you go to a place like Paris and, you know, I've been to Paris multiple times, but and I've never been to the Louvre. <laughs> and I don't say that proudly. It's just it's something that I've never done. But for most people, they go to Florence. How can you go to Florence and not go to the Uffizi Museum or see Michelangelo's David? I, th- I think that's a, a tough ask for tourists. If th- I'm saying that's what the industry would have you do totally. And it's not completely, I mean, it's, it makes sense. My, what I would add to this very strongly is to prepare. Now, just take the Louvre. Most of those guided trips, it's, it's what I call drive-by tourism. People don't stand for more than two minutes in front of a, a painting and then they're gone and there's no idea what it was. But you have to, if you are, if you prepare, if you read books, if you decide that, okay, at the Louvre, I don't care about this, that, or the other. I only want to see um, Syrian art. I only want to see Egyptian art. I only want to see French art of the early 17th century. But pick, do your homework, pick your choice. You are going to have a really great experience. And then you can avoid that stuff. Another thing is um, just generally not to, to do a lot more than just read a guidebook. The people who rely on you know, those pour everything into one trip tourism groups are the ones who get cheated cheated by the companies because they, it is, as I say, drive-by tourism, and cheating themselves because they don't get a chance to really get involved. So the more superficial the planning, I would say the more superficial the trip and the more likely that you are contributing to over-tourism. Now, another thing you could do is stay in one place. Don't try to do more than one city or one uh, province or whatever, and explore that place slowly. That way you're also going to spend more money locally because over-tourism is also um, it's, it's unpopular with the residents because generally the money doesn't stay in the local economy. So that's always good is to stay in one place and explore it slowly. And then think about it. Um, maybe you when you're at your what do you like to do when you're home? When you're home, do you go to church? If you don't, when you go to visit churches overseas or mosques or whatever, do a little homework on that. 
music, you know, maybe you just like popular music, but you're going to go to Vienna. Are you going to go to classical music? Maybe you'll listen a little bit and prepare yourself for that. And then goodness gracious, maybe you'll learn a little bit of the foreign language. So God forbid, right? <laughs> one of one of the things I did for my book was I went and read, and we the National Geographic is headquartered here in Washington, and I went to their nice library and read their very first travel books. Their travel books had nothing to do with where you stay and what you eat. Nothing. It was all this is where you are. This is the history. This is the way you see this, that, and the other. It was it was just rich, rich with. Um, with the culture and the society. There were also pages of, of local language. And at the very end, there were a couple places to, to stay. And that was it. So that's how much travel has changed. You know, one of my favorite tips is that when you when you go before you plan, you talked about planning yes. before you go. One of my favorite things to do is look up some of the literature and film that's related to the place you're going. And by by film, I don't mean like a travel log. Uh, I mean, an actual film, a cinematic piece. When we were in Sicily, the first thing I did was pick up a copy of The Leopard. And it made our visit there so much richer because we could understand the fall of the royal families and, and things like that, rather than just, oh, well, there's another palace. Excellent. Excellent. Novels, I think, are the best. Then history books, then then modern politics. Um, I in my I went to our, we have a really good independent bookstore here in DC called Politics and Prose. And part of my um, research was just to go to Politics and Prose and see, okay, how many books do we have on European history versus European guidebooks? And it was astonishing. A handful on European history and wall of European guidebooks. The, the guy who runs it is a buddy. And I said, look, look what's happened. He says he can't believe it either. So we we need a little more depth. In fact, if you go to Sicily, I, I have a, a cookbook that, that I read before I went there so I could understand the food. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point because I did the same thing too. I wish I could remember the name of it, but there's a woman who's been an expat from, ooh, is it England? Like, yeah, I think we saw the same. It was an expat. Yeah. And her book, it's a cookbook, yes, but it's also a cultural yes. guide of of Sicily. And I'll put it in the show notes when when we when we publish this podcast because it was an excellent book, and it also led to the richness of the trip to Sicily. Right. You you mentioned some factors, Elizabeth, that um, are contributing to this over tourism, and you mentioned the rise of the global middle class. Anyone who's traveled internationally has seen this. Um, one thing that I always point out is the rise of the cruise ship culture. Um, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I did a whole big, long, fat chapter of my book about cruise ships. Um, <clears throat> and no one less than Arthur Frommer agrees with you and me. Um, the cruise ship um, culture, I call the chapter Destination Nowhere, <laughs> because it doesn't matter where you're going. You, your whole experience is being in a rather often crowded cruise ship where um, the entertainment has nothing to do with wherever you're traveling. On the, and I took several trips because of, I was writing the book and I wanted, I don't believe in just taking it secondhand. I have to do it. And I was appalled, one, that the entertainment was all about, it was like being on a game show. And then secondly, that the, um, 
they had repeated lectures about shopping in, this was in uh, Cozumel and um, uh, uh, Belize, about shopping in um, chain foreign shops and warning, warning the tourists not to buy locally, warning them about locals as if they were going to rip them off. And it was astonishing. Um, the uh, Now, on the other hand, then I took the, extre the other extreme, the wonderful Lindblad um, cruises that were the opposite. It was, they were small, small boats. And yes, they were, they were significantly more expensive. However, by the end of the day, I had an incredible experience through Costa Rica with Lindblad that I will never forget. It was all ecotourism. There was none of that game show stuff when we were on the ship, which was not often because they really believed in taking you on board. We got to see things no one else was able to see because it was environmentally friendly, um, small ship with only 50 people on it. Um, it was a once in a lifetime. And, you know, one of those versus five of the other cruise ships, any day um, you take the one of those. Quality, quality, quality. So, yes, the cruise ship is... Um, a, a tour guide at, you know, at the worst. And, um, the environmental, um, degradation is serious. You just saw another report out of Europe that, um, cruise ships pollute the air when they're docked right. more than 20,000 cars, one of the smaller cruise ship. And then we get, we, um, carnival just, uh, um, not even a month ago, was um, the Carnival, the president of Carnival, Carnival Cruises, uh, appeared in court in Miami because they continue to uh, dis disregard pollution of water rules. So it's it's um, it, it's again not regulated, and um, it's um, I think it's it's not a good tourism experience because you don't really see foreign travel. And um, if you want to have a week um, partying up like that, why not just go to a, one resort and stay there instead of polluting the ocean and the um, airways? We're talking to Elizabeth Becker, author of Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. I just did, Elizabeth, a, a podcast on the Cinque Terre, and I think the Cinque Terre is one of the places that's been impacted the most by these cruise ships because you'll have days when a couple cruise ships land in La Spezia where you could have upwards of 10,000 or more people disembarking into these tiny towns who have a population less than half of that. And I looked at the math and I said, this would be equivalent to, say, five and a half, six million people landing in Rome on one single day. It's changed the Cinque Terre, I think, for the worse, what are some places that have done the right thing when it comes to dealing with over tourism? Well, um, I thought Cinque Terre was starting to re um, have restrictions on the number of visitors. Is that not true? They're talking about it. It, it seems it seems more that it's a threat than actual implementation. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I'll start with the easiest. And that's the Eiffel Tower. Um, well, five years ago, I don't hold me to this. They just said, okay, you, you have to book. No more tourists just showing up. So now you have to book on a website. 
they have an orderly procession of visitors that you can queue, you can line up on the same date in hopes that there is going to be some some extra spots. But they are just saying, okay, there is a limit. And there is a limit to the number of people who can go, and we're not going to have the base of the Eiffel Tower flooded with people waiting to go. So that's 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 the easiest example because you go on the website, da-da-da-da, and <clears throat> every time I go to Paris, and I used to live there, every time I go to Paris, I hear at least one disgruntled tourist saying, I can't believe it, I came all the way to Paris and I couldn't get on the Eiffel Tower. Think ahead, see what you want to do, see if it requires a reservation it doesn't cost anything. Not most of this stuff doesn't cost anything. Now, um, I was just invited to um, the Arctic Circle of Norway to give talks on over tourism, because the beaches there. I'm talking about the Arctic Circle. There are two beaches there in villages of no more than twelve people each that are flooded with two hundred fifty thousand visitors a year. Wow. And so, and because Norway is a open country, they have um, the right to roam rules since, you know, the 12th century or something. And so they are, they and the government are trying to figure out how they can regulate without um, regulate so that the people could actually get their, their um, beach back without going afoul of these national rules. And that's what you're going to come up against. It's all over the world. The beach in Thailand, the island in Thailand that's closed, the beach in the Philippines that's closed. Um, Dubrovnik, speaking of cruises, Dubrovnik yes. just said no more cruise ships. And so finally, then the cruise companies said, OK, what can we do to get back? And so now they are staggering the 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 number of cruises coming and the number of days that they can come. It's not a final solution. Venice. um I don't know how many referendums have passed where the citizens say no more big cruise ships, send them to the land. They can't come to the city. And then the regional or national government sits on it and won't allow it. Finally, the the latest mayor and, you know, who knows how how sincere any mayor is. The latest mayor said, OK, I'm going to start allowing protests again. So we recently had a protest that may. And if they keep protesting and protesting, that may help. Um, Barcelona. The um, and and now I'm bringing up the other besides cruise ships. The other big problem is Airbnb, and Airbnb has has added to the flooding beyond belief. So Barcelona, a few years ago, was the first major city I think in the world that voted a, in a mayor who made it part of her platform to control tourism. <clears throat> her name is Ada Colau, and um, she's discovering just how little um, power she has. So she's she's closing at least one illegal Airbnb a day. Airbnb is suing her because they don't like her rules. Meanwhile, cities around the world are passing regulations. Just this morning, I got a notice that Honolulu passed really strict regulations that they, they had, you know, thousands of um, Airbnb listings, but only 800 permits. Um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina now has uh, tourism police to make sure that they're no longer illegal Airbnbs. And this is for two reasons. One, it goes against all those careful laws that every every city has about zoning. And you know, if you've ever been a reporter, you know zoning is a very special thing. Your neighborhood is your neighborhood. You're raising your kids there. 
you um, you're walking your dog there, you're having fun there, and you don't want a bunch of foreigners or outsiders um, partying it up and um, changing the, the character of the neighborhood. Two, in this age of of incredible homelessness and um, lack of affordable housing, that Airbnb stuff is taking affordable housing out of the market. So you've got that set of concerns about it. And third, um, you have the Airbnb uh, flooding some of the most beautiful areas of a city. And I'll get that gets back to Barcelona, where the uh, the historic center is um, is really out of the um, market for the locals. And that's why you see graffiti that that says tells the tourists to get out. That's why Barcelona has become the symbol of, of over tourism, because and uh, you're going to see fights on Airbnb for um, years to come. You mentioned you lived in Paris for a while, Elizabeth. What are what were some of your favorite places in Paris to go? Uh, I mean, Paris is on everyone's bucket list for a foodie destination. I love going to Paris and just sitting in a in a little cafe and watching the world go by and enjoying a fresh salad or a cup of coffee. But what are some of your favorite places in Paris that you enjoyed going to while you lived there as a local? Well, sadly, some of our favorites are no longer there. I lived there in the 90, in late 80s, early 90s. So so this is just before the, the globalization. So some of, the lo- some of that is gone. Um, I always go, I wish my husband were sitting next to me because he knows the name of all the places. Um, <laughs> Oh, the one in the seventh. Can I change it to a different part of France? Of course. Uh, Paris, mostly the problem with me is I go see my friends and they take us places. So, and, and I can never remember what it is, but the place I now go as a foodie and as a tourism place, I think the best tourism place in France is Bordeaux. Oh, love it. Bordeaux, I spent a lot, I have written a lot about Bordeaux because if you want to have a place that welcomes tourists and yet at the same time ensures that tourism protects and nurtures the local culture. It's Bordeaux. Um, They had a great mayor, um, Alain Juppé, who had a vision of how to clean up, modernize, and at the same time conserve what is great about Bordeaux. He cleaned up the river. He protected, he cleaned up the, um, the historic center, got rid of the cars, he put in an electric tram system, the whole thing. And it's now, I think, the best place to eat and visit in all of France. And I can say that without worrying about over-tourism because they have they figured out different ways to extend people out. And the brilliant thing is that um, because he was a local, he convinced the, um, the vineyards to open up. Believe it or not, until a few years ago, the vineyards did not like tourism. I'll send you, in fact, the article I did on this. You'll like it. Um, opened up to tourism, and it has it has changed the tourism market. It's helped the city as well, and so now it's vineyard to table, farm to table, sea to table. It's it's your your um, it's my favorite place to go in France for that. And you had asked what whether any of places have um, where I like the food. And I think what I like about Bordeaux is it not only has interesting new dishes for um, for the true modern t- foodie, but it's also retained a real old-fashioned dishes too. Um, 
the you know the one the the restaurant in the middle of the town Nuai. Um, no. That's that's classic Bordeaux, and you could go there, and it might as well be 1960. I mean, but oh, you have beautiful. these fabulous, cutting edge, using seafood so brilliantly. And the other thing that you know you can find on on any list, and then at the same time you've got the Bordeaux wines, you have cheeses that you can't remember eating before, uh, the seafood, the oysters from nearby the Atlantic, and then Armagnac as well. It's it's just fun. So it's it's the forgotten dishes as well as the new one. It, it helped me understand a lot of the rest of the world. For instance, the, the wines of Chile. I met vineyard owners who said, my son is in Chile. Or it, it, so that you feel the way that the culture of French wine is spreading around the world. And I got the same sense when I was in Denmark of um, reverting to the sea. You're re- re- rediscovering seaweed, creatures that you know we didn't eat before. And that reminded me of Japan. And, and I'm from Seattle. It reminded me of Seattle. So that it's fun to see how every place you go, if you, if you take your time, and I'll repeat that, take time. Stay in one place for at least a week, at least a week. Um, you'll you'll not only understand the local culture and f- nurture the local culture. You'll see how their influence reminds you of another spot and another spot. And I think when you stay for a week, one tip that I always give is go to the same place every morning for your coffee or your pastry or your breakfast. The little local place, they'll get to know you. And this is a great in to becoming a local when you're traveling. Oh, yes, I totally agree with you. And, of course, we not only do that, but we pick out, we do a little um, test of which will be the place where we're going to buy our croissant. (laughs) And then we'll test where do we really want to have that glass of wine before dinner. I have a friend, she and her husband would... um, spend a week and they would choose the first day they would choose which restaurant they would eat in every night. Great, great strategy. I love it. (laughs) I want to, before I let you go, I want to go back to Cambodia real quick because we didn't get a chance to talk about the cuisine of Cambodia. And I think Americans are familiar with Vietnamese food, with a lot of Southeast Asian food, but maybe not so much with Cambodian food. What is the cuisine of Cambodia like? It's, um, well, first of all, it's more, you probably will, when you eat it first, you'll think it's more like Thailand. It has a a, 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 a basic uh, rotten fish sauce and it uh, heavy on seafood and vegetables. It, it is a lighter cuisine, I think, than both of them, and it does not necess- it's not necessarily as hot. Uh, one of my favorite dishes is a big squash, something like a pop- pumpkin, baked inside. It's baked with inside a, a custard. Oh. It still has um, a French infusion to it. It was, it stayed, it had a French flavor longer than Vietnam or Laos. And so you will find um, something that resembles a potpourri, and the uh, uh, pot de feu, excuse me, a pot de feu, and um, lots of very clever fish dishes. Rice, of course, always rice, and um, it's become modernized, which means it it uh, it tastes like a lot of other countries, not just Cambodia. But um, 
you you're you're getting good restaurants now that are recovering the old Cambodian cuisine. And I have to say, it, you can't forget that during the Khmer Rouge, all the tradition was um, pretty much destroyed, and a lot of the cooks. It, it was a pretty destructive period, so that a lot of Cambodians have not only had to recover economically, they had to recover socially and culturally, so that um, the food is coming back slowly but surely. And there's a there's a Cambodian American uh, chef restaurant owner in San Francisco, who uh, a young woman who has taken that as part of her mission and she's got quite the restaurant in, in in San Francisco and also goes back into Cambodia and then you have that also in Battambang the, the city I mentioned before that is more like Cambodia where they have recovered and they are serving that food so fish, rice very clever seasoning that is not as hot as Thailand and um, the, the meat is chicken and um, pork as in most of Southeast Asia not beef uh, it's 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 stunning and a little more subtle, much more subtle, I would say. You live in Washington, D.C., yep. a city that has lots of famous upscale restaurants, but I'm not sure what the food personality is of Washington, D.C. And by that, I mean, when you think of Miami, you think maybe of Cuban cuisine. When you think of New York, maybe you think of pizza. Um, I don't know when we think of Washington, D.C., is there something in particular that we think of Half smoke, maybe. Uh, what What's the? <laughs> um, it's it, it, our personality is changing dramatically. You know that um, we've become very gentrified. But um, before it was very southern. It was barbecue. It was <clears throat> smoked, not half smokes, but real barbecue. This this underneath it. This is a southern city, and um, <clears throat> uh, African American food very much uh, still. It would be it. On the other side, uh, we're becoming so gentrified. Uh, we're starting to to have a, a New York kind of feel for the food. So I I still say we're a bit barbecue, but we're also I don't know food. We're here in Capitol Hill. I live on Capitol Hill. We have two um, restaurants that are Michelin starred. And I could not tell you what the cuisine is. It's not European. It's not traditional American. And that's what's sort of fun. Like we're going to go to uh, brunch on Saturday to Little Pearl, which is a which is a, a brunchy kind of place right on the grounds of the historic Naval Hospital from the Civil War era. That's now our community center, and they are in the old stables, which have been recovered. Beautiful Civil War era, and. Whenever we go up, it's something different. They had um, Vietnamese coffee the other day, uh, a strange kind of um, a croissanty thing that I didn't understand, a very hot taco kind of um, breakfast sandwich. That's D.C. You're, you, you will be surprised at how much fun it is now. I guess you've got people coming from all over the world, and it only makes sense that you would have this mishmash going on in D.C. Yeah, and it's also that it's a more fun to, place to live in. Um, it's always I've always loved it here, but I think it's um, it's now I think it's we're at the top for young, well-educated people to come here because there's so much going on. So they bring their food with them. And they might be more open-minded to trying new things as well. Yeah, they might be more entrepreneurial to, to open up those things. 
Ah, good point. Well, we've been talking to Elizabeth Becker. She's the author of Overbooked, The Exploding Business of Travel and Tourism. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. Before we let you go, give people your website, where they can find you, where they can find your work. It's very easy. It's www.elizabethbecker.com. And thank you, Brett, for having me on. Okay, there you go. That's my interview with Elizabeth Becker. And I'm not shy to tell you, I was a little bit nervous before interviewing her. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, for crying out loud, who's lived in a war zone in Southeast Asia. But she couldn't have been kinder. And boy, she's got some great stories to tell. I really enjoyed speaking with her. I'm Brent Peterson. That's going to do it for this edition of Destination Eat Drink. It's been distributed by Ed Silla. You can catch every episode at DestinationEatDrink.com or at RadioMisfits.com. And join me next week when we'll be talking to Alex Mayazi, editor of Gastro Obscura. If you're not familiar with Gastro Obscura, Alex will tell you all about it. But trust me, it is a vital tool if you do any traveling and eating whatsoever. All right. Talk to you next week. Until then, I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. 